so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Why did you just delete my lunchroom? Was that your actual lunchroom? Lindsay! <laughs> I thought it was from that last was, week. That was, my, that, was my, that was my lunchroom. Oh, no. I thought it was from last week. No. Hold on. All you have to do is go to File, See Version History. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, back from quote-unquote vacation, because with two little kids, it is not vacation. And with me this week, reunited and it feels so good, is Brent Leatherwood. Is that, is that Amy Grant? I feel like I just had a, like, one woman vaudeville show just in the beginning. <laughs> yeah, was that was that was that Amy Grant? That is not Amy Grant. Uh oh. The reunited and it feels so good song. Oh my word, Brent. Well, who is that? Who also doesn't know who Megan Trainer is? Everybody. Well, okay, but who is that? I don't know. It's an old song. Oh, okay. It's not Amy Grant. Okay, but that feels very like kind of late eighties ish, early nineties. Yeah, something like CCM. that. I'll look it up in real time here. Is it like a CCM song? No, it's not CCM. Oh, okay. I don't look. That era is is solely defined for me by country music. Everything else is, was just noise that was going through the radio. This song so. is by Peaches and Herb or Herb. <laughs> I don't know if his name is Herb or Herb, but it's Peaches and Herb. And you, Herb, and you let off the from, show with from that? 1995. Okay, well, I told you. Okay, okay. mid 90s. It's terrible. Anyway, right. uh, I'm glad to be back. Did you miss me? We all of us uh, missed you. Although apparently you actually missed us more because it didn't seem like you had like a relaxing time away. Yes. Yeah. I cannot believe I used up work vacation days. Uh, for that trip because work is a vacation <laughs> compared to the trip with little kids. So. But you did have time away. You were in warmer weather. You had a pool, beach. I mean, there's no, not I, a whole lot of pity. I would have stayed here. I would have stayed here hands down except for being able to see grandparents. But anyway, I don't want to complain about the trip because I'm glad we got to see grandparents. What I want to do, though, is talk about this week. And we're going to start off with what the ERLC has been featuring this week. First up is a piece by Katherine Parks, and it's an explainer about companies providing abortion drugs in light of state restrictions. So, you know, there are things like the Texas SB8 law that's outlawing right now, while it's in effect, abortions while a fetal heartbeat is detected. So that can be as soon as six weeks. And so after that point, abortions are not allowed. So some companies are tragically being opportunistic 
in this time and finding a way to provide abortions. And as we know, and as we pointed out in the past, to continue making money off of these abortions. They are providing drugs from overseas. And Catherine has explained what those drugs are and a little bit more about how this process works. And this this article is important because it emphasizes why we have to continue to, number one, care for vulnerable mothers and these preborn children, why we have to continue to seek policies against abortion, including these abortion-inducing drugs, and why we have to pray toward both of these ends because it is a spiritual battle, and it's not something that we are going to be able to handle on our own. We need the Lord's help. And the genesis behind this this article was because we noticed about a week ago there were several articles and secular outlets like touting the benefits of these abortion-inducing drugs. And so it just, it very much appeared that uh, there was a concerted public relations effort out there to make it sound like, oh, with these these abortion-inducing drugs, they're, they're so good and they will just, they will just make your problems go away. And obviously we just recalled at that sort of use of that kind of terminology to talk about the life of a preborn child whether whether it was intended to create that child or not it's just terrible that anyone would see uh, the life of a child as as a problem to be disposed of and uh, we we wanted to provide a thoughtful resource and response to those so that Christians would would have something else to read about the really terrible effects of these abortion-inducing drugs. And uh, I'm so thankful that Catherine was able to uh, pull this together for us because uh, I think it's really helpful in this moment. And as you're talking about SB8, the Texas law, we all should be mindful that the oral arguments in that case uh, are coming up on Monday at the U.S. Supreme Court. And uh, those are happening. The reason that that was able to get to the Supreme Court uh, so quickly is because it's on something called the rocket docket, which is just a colloquial term for expedited review by the U.S. Supreme Court. And we shouldn't forget that the the big Supreme Court case, Dobbs, those oral arguments have been scheduled for December 1st. And so it's it's very likely that uh, here over the next few weeks, there there will be uh, some some big moments in the abortion debate here in the U.S. And we will definitely be covering uh, what comes out of the Supreme Court there. And I just wanted to mention about these abortion-inducing drugs. You mentioned that people were online touting the benefits, and these these medications are actually riskier than mm. the actual abortion procedure, which also has risks. But Catherine points that out. So yeah, well, I mean, it's and it's certainly a risk to the the preborn child. Well, absolutely, and it just goes you know, hand in glove with this culture that we are finding ourselves in where everything is just seen as disposable and, oh, we could just make your problems go away. And just defining life in those kinds of terms are just so repulsive. And that's why Christians, we need to speak a word of life to women who find themselves in these situations. Right. And we need the power of that word, the power of God's word to change hearts and minds to see the truth of the dignity of every single person from the moment of conception to the day of natural death as being made in God's image. Next up, we have another explainer. This is by Jason Thacker, and this is a really interesting turn of events in the current administration. 
and it's about the Biden administration's national strategy on gender equity and equality. So you can already tell that that is some loaded language. And I just want to read from the very beginning of the article. So the Biden administration released the, quote, first ever national gender strategy in our nation's history on October 22nd. According to the administration, it's intended to bring about greater gender equity and equality for all people, whether in the United States or abroad. And as Jason points out in this article, I mean, this is, it's kind of heady. It's, it's, you have to really read slowly to try to understand what all is involved in this. And of course, as we learn more, we will continue to provide resources from a biblical worldview. But there are a number of problems with this resource. And we already know the worldview and the platform from which this administration is coming from, that as believers, we're going to have some issues with this. But namely, religious liberty issues are at stake with this, and also the absence of their discussion of some religious freedom issues around the world, given the many human rights abuses that are happening with the Uyghur Muslims in China, and particularly uh, human rights abuses of women and girls around the world. And if this is about promoting greater gender equity and equality, well, we've got to consider how women and girls are being affected around the world. There is a push for abortion within this strategy, and there's the future discussion of online content moderation, what's going to be considered hate speech as far as people like Christians and other um, those of other faiths who live out their deeply held religious convictions, which means that they have convictions about what how God created us with two biological sexes and, and what our gender means and how that's for our good and for our flourishing. So it's something to watch. It's something we will be watching, and it's something we will continue to provide resources on. It, it definitely read this piece by Jason. Jason is, is such a, a great thinker from the perspective of, of Christian ethics. And look, this national strategy on gender, I mean, it is just, the vast majority of it is a solution. And I use that term very liberally, is a solution in search of a problem. This is the type of thinking that gives us terms like Latinx that virtually no folks from uh, Hispanic ethnicity use. It gives us terms like pregnant people when we all know that only women can actually bear children. And it's just amazing that with all the other problems uh, that we are facing in our society, that taxpayer resources and and the time and energy of elected officials and national leaders are, are being spent on stuff like this. It, it's just mind-blowing. But read this piece so that you understand a little bit more about it and how Christians should process this news. And then finally, a piece that's a little less uh, heady or a little less academic and has some—these other pieces also have real-world church implications, but I feel like this one is very practical—by Deepak Raju and Marty Machowski, and it's titled, How a Children's Ministry Can Partner with Christian Parents, Helping Moms and Dads Grow in Christ and Model True Faith. And what I appreciate about this article is the emphasis on a parent's spiritual maturity and how that will, by God's grace, directly, in a good way, affect uh, their children. And these two gentlemen just talk about how, you know, it's not the children's ministry's job to 
bear the sole responsibility for uh, the spiritual shepherding of our children. That's the parent's job that God has given us in Deuteronomy 6. And that's going to flow out of a walk with the Lord that the parents have. And so they point out that spiritual maturity is always our first goal. They talk about help equipping parents with the Bible and and reading the Bible with their children. They talk about mentoring and the importance of that to know what Christian parenting looks like in the real world. And then they talk about helping parents endure in the faith. So they talk about playing the long game in parenting and playing the long game in our walk with the Lord. And we want to, as we walk with Christ, as parents, set an example for our children and help them to walk with Him. I think overall, my takeaway from reading this piece is that it serves as a, once again, a helpful reminder that you have little eyes on you and um, they see you, uh, obviously, when when we all make mistakes as as parents, uh, but they also see you when you are doing your best to walk with uh, our Lord. And uh, that can have a, a deep and long-lasting effect on our children. And that's that's the kind of effect uh, we want to have on them. So yeah, this is a great piece. And I agree, it's, it's not quite as heavy as our other pieces, thankfully. Yes, so people like me can uh, more readily understand it than when I'm re- reading an explainer sometimes by Jason, which I'm very thankful for. And I'm thankful we have some uh, good thinkers to help us understand a variety of things that are happening in our culture. So, Brent, I thought this was a good overview of what we have happening this week. We've got a lot more coming up next week, and we're just glad to be able to serve churches and educate and equip all of us, by God's grace, to think biblically about what is happening around us and faithfully live out our faith in Christ. But for now, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Moving into our culture section, Brent, tell us what's happening this week. All right. Thanks, Lindsay. All right. So we're going to begin this week with a story from ABC News, and it is about the back-and-forth negotiations that are happening on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. So this is from ABC News. In a last-minute push before heading overseas, President Joe Biden headed to Capitol Hill Thursday morning to try to get all Democrats behind his social spending and climate policy agenda. On a call with reporters, Senior administration officials laid out the framework of a $1.75 trillion social spending package President Biden will present to House Democrats, including skeptical progressives. So President Biden, later in the morning on Thursday, uh, held a speech where he kind of mapped out what is in this framework. And thankfully, we have CBS News reporting on what all is in it. The White House on Thursday rolled out a revamped framework that aims to expand the nation's social safety net and combat climate change. The cost of the package has been whittled down from its original $3.5 trillion price tag to $1.75 trillion over a decade. Despite the drop in cost, it is opposed by Republicans. So Democrats are trying to enact the plan through a budgetary process called reconciliation which would allow it to clear the Senate solely with Democratic support. The new framework unveiled by the White House contains $555 billion for climate and clean energy investments, $400 billion for child care and preschool through programs funded for six years. In addition to expanding access to universal preschool for all three- and four-year-olds, the plan also limits child care costs for some families to no more than 7% of income. It also extends the child tax credit 
for one year, which the White House said will provide more than 35 million households, up to $3,600 in tax cuts per child. And it is paid for, all this spending is paid for through a 15% minimum tax that will be imposed on corporate profits that large corporations report to shareholders, as well as a 1% surcharge on corporate stock buybacks. The framework also calls for a global minimum tax and a new surtax on the wealthiest Americans' income, as well as bolstered IRS enforcement. The bill would impose a 5% tax rate above those with an income over $10 million and another 3% surtax on income over $25 million. So, needless to say, there is a lot of spending uh, in this program, and there is a lot of new taxes on uh, very successful corporations and uh, the wealthiest individual Americans. So, uh, it is... We have talked about it before. The spending in our nation's capital is quite large these days, and it has been quite large for many years now. So this is not something that should shock us all, but these numbers are incredibly heady. Well, speaking of heady, if Brent's description of this made your head spin a little bit, we have a helpful resource on our site titled, and it'll be in the show notes, ERLC Concerns with Build Back Better, the name of the plan. And Chelsea, our policy director, gives a helpful rundown on some concerns that we have with this plan. And she starts with affirming um, some of the things that we believe as Christians. And then she talks about some of the religious liberty concerns because it restricts, this plan restricts the participation of faith-based centers and schools in child care and universal pre-K. So that that's a problem. There are some issues with sexual orientation and gender identity language with SOGI language. There are some life concerns because as we've talked about in the past, it excludes Hyde Amendment protections, which if those are removed, then taxpayers will be funding abortions. And as Chelsea points out, there are multiple instances throughout the bill where funding is directed, as she says, this is a quote, to programs that would allow for that funding to be used for abortions or for programs that have sent funding to Planned Parenthood. So obviously these things are problematic. The ERLC on the Hill is uh, doing work there to advocate against these things, to protect life and to protect religious liberty. And I will say this is one of those times when I'm glad to work for the ERLC because I— Definitely wouldn't have even paid much attention to this story, if I'm being honest. I would not know what Build Back Better is. <laughs> but thanks to our faithful coworkers, I am more educated about it, and I hope that you are too. And we should be clear, there are faithful, Bible-reading, Bible-believing, Orthodox, evangelical Christians who might see the level of spending in this and say, you know what, our nation needs that kind of investment. That has nothing to do with the explainer that Chelsea has helpfully produced for us. There are all sorts of provisions in this, though, that should be concerning to those same Christians who are like, I'm not bothered by the spending. And those have to do with, as you say, religious liberty, the SOGI uh, requirements, and the elimination of pro-life protections that have been a source of bipartisan support for many years now, and that's the direction our explainer goes, and that's where I think Christians should rightfully say, mm, this bill, it may have spending that I agree with, may not have spending that I agree with. These provisions 
are particularly concerning, and if they found their way into permanent law, uh, would be very objectionable uh, for uh, those of us who are Christians. So that that I just wanted to make sure that we underscored that point. Now, on a really shallow extra side note, okay, so the 400, what was it, 400 billion proposed spending for child care and preschool. Again, this has nothing to do with child care and preschool. 400 billion. I just read an article the other day or saw something where Elon Musk is now worth $300 billion. <laughs> He's worth almost what they're proposing to spend. A whole federal government is proposing to spend on a certain category of things. Yeah. Yeah. Does that not just blow your mind? It absolutely does. You you probably would have used that $400 billion to have your children taken care of while you and your husband actually went on a vacation last week, wouldn't you? <laughs> I would have definitely hired some child care for sure. <laughs> okay, moving on next. Uh, this is actually on the COVID legal front, and it comes to us from CBS News. A Staten Island judge denied a police union's request to temporarily halt the implementation of the city's vaccine mandate that is set to take effect November 1st. The Police Benevolent Association, New York City's largest police union, had argued in their request for a temporary restraining order on Monday that the policy does not make clear potential exceptions for medical or religious reasons and does not give unvaccinated officers sufficient time to apply for such exemptions as those appeals must have been submitted by Wednesday, one week after the mandate was announced. Additionally, they noted that the department's VAX or TEST program has been effective in ensuring public health while simultaneously providing privacy to individual medical decisions. Well, we've had a lot of chatter in our uh, staff Slack coronavirus channel about some questions regarding vaccine mandates and challenges in courts and and um, even some of our own staff members talking to some of the their fellow church members who are dealing with these things and trying to work through them. And as somebody pointed out, there have been challenges, uh, which we agree that there will be some legitimate medical reasons. There will be some some religious exemptions, but there have not been a lot of them that have held up in court. Is that true, Brent? That's right. We, we were talking last night about a report in the Wall Street Journal that kind of gave a big overview of these challenges to vaccine mandates in in various contexts around the country. And the vast majority of them, the courts have said, yeah, this this doesn't pass the test. The, the government does have a legitimate reason to get people vaccinated from a, a disease that has killed 700,000 of our, our fellow Americans. And uh, there, that is especially the case when it comes to individuals who work for the government in uh, medical professions and, and folks who are in uh, contractor positions uh, for the government. And that's where the courts have pretty much said, yeah, th these challenges just don't pass muster. Now, in the private sector, it, it's a little murkier. Um, that area of jurisprudence hasn't been tested quite as much. And, and that is a place where if a private employer is asking someone to get vaccinated and they claim some sort of exemption, that challenge might be upheld by a court. It's still uh, unclear. I, we would say this, that establishing a religious exemption, particularly if you're, you're Southern Baptist or, or evangelical uh, more broadly, it that's actually a pretty high bar because honestly, there, there just aren't that many denominations that are against medical interventions. There are a few, 
and individuals who belong to those denominations, uh, they, they probably have a little bit better case. But, you know, the courts, they're going to ask if someone is seeking a religious exemption. Okay, well, you know, can you tell me what sort of vaccines have you not avoided, you know, previously? Uh, what sorts of medical interventions have you avoided previously? And uh, if you can't establish that, the courts might say, ah, I just, I don't know that this is consistent with that. Now, you might have objections based in other areas, you know, uh, be it medical or personal, philosophical, political, uh, but those aren't religious liberty objections. And I think that's what the courts are, are going to really try and and home in on uh, for these challenges. And and so, obviously, this is something that, that we are following, and uh, it's something I'm sure a number of the members of our audience are, are interested in as well. All right, these next two stories are uh, interrelated uh, because of their taking a look at the uh, efforts to combat abuse within the Southern Baptist Convention. So the first story comes from Baptist Press. Motions to create state-level sex abuse task forces failed at the 2021 State Baptist Annual Meetings in Mississippi and Missouri this week, although a motion on handling abuse was unanimously approved in Arkansas. A comparable motion presented at the California Southern Baptist Convention meeting Wednesday was ruled out of order and a move to overturn that ruling failed. But a shorter, more general motion passed after about an hour-long discussion, said Terry Barone, spokesperson for California Baptists. In Mississippi, state messengers defeated the motion 217 to 178 Tuesday afternoon, tweeted messenger Adam Wyatt, pastor of Corinth Baptist in McGee, Mississippi, and a member of the SBC Executive Committee. He said states should be proactive in helping churches respond to the issue of sex abuse. Quote, we do want to honor local church autonomy, Wyatt said, but we also would love for local churches to have a good place to go for best practices. I do suspect that churches and associations and states will want to be a little bit more proactive just because it's such an important issue. And that it is, as a matter of fact, probably many folks in our audience will remember that the ERLC is responsible for a three-year assessment of abuse coming out of the 2021 annual SBC meeting. Well, the Tennessean newspaper here in Nashville had a story on that this week. They report another sexual abuse inquiry into the convention is also underway. The sexual abuse inquiry the executive committee recently debated is about how top SBC leadership handled sexual abuse claims at a denomination level. The other is about instances of abuse occurring in individual churches. Quote, the whole idea of the assessment is to gather the data that we need to know what the patterns of abuse are, said Todd Bankert, an Indiana pastor who successfully pushed to open the second sexual abuse inquiry. For next steps, the ERLC will hire an outside firm to conduct the assessment. Brent Leatherwood, hey, that's me. Ah, hey. That's you. Hey, that's me. Acting president of the ERLC said the organization is currently engaging other experts who can assist with that hiring process. And to be clear, the hiring process is for the uh, identification of the outside firm that would conduct the assessment. Continuing with the story, it's possible that the structure for the investigation will be similar to that of the executive committee investigation in which an internal task force is overseeing the outside firm. Leatherwood said that's what the ERLC is in the process of determining right 
now. The RLC also wants to engage other SBC entities on the assessment, including the SBC Executive Committee. So that is where we find ourselves. There are uh, essentially, just to sum up, uh, there are multiple efforts within the state conventions, and their annual meetings are occurring this time of year, usually in late October and early November. That's when the vast majority of them occur, and there are efforts underway to spin up state-level abuse task force and investigations. And then, obviously, we have uh, what is going on here with the SBC Executive Committee and with us at the RLC and and looking at churches throughout the broad domain of uh, the convention of the SBC. So. So just to clarify, so is the ERLC heading up this one looking into the churches? Yes, although I wouldn't phrase it that way. Uh, the ERLC has been given the responsibility by messengers to lead an assessment. And by lead, it is essentially we are responsible for identifying an outside firm that could work with churches on a voluntary basis to figure out how abuse has been handled throughout the 50,000 churches that comprise the convention that we call the Southern Baptist Convention. And that will take place over the course of the next three years. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you for that explanation. It can get confusing, all the different— It can get very, very confusing. It can get very, very confusing. There's no doubt about it. So— But we are here to serve, and this is how messengers have asked us to serve, and they have tasked us with this responsibility. And our trustees at the September ERLC trustee meeting said, yes, we want to take this on. And so uh, we are absolutely going to do our due diligence in making sure that happens. Well, and I am thankful that you are providentially at the helm for such a time as this. So may the Lord continue to give you wisdom. Thank you. Okay, finally, and we'll go a little bit lighthearted here, uh, this is truly the best time of the year for sports. Uh, There are so many sports that are occurring right now. All the major sports here in America are playing, and uh, no, I I don't don't consider soccer to be a part of that. Um, But right now, this is especially uh, sweet for me because the Atlanta Braves, my, my dear, beloved Atlanta Braves, are playing in the World Series. Currently, the series is tied one game apiece, uh, and they're heading to Atlanta for three straight games. And what I hope are the final three games, because it would mean that the Braves are sweeping the Astros. At least that's what I hope. And uh, and so that's happening. And then college football is about midway through its season. And Lindsay, here's a little here's a little pop quiz for you. Can you guess what the highest rated college football game on television was this year? Highest rated. Hmm. Hmm. I hope it doesn't have to do with Alabama. I don't know. Alabama versus somebody. Okay. It was the University of Tennessee taking on the University of Alabama. How in the world was that highest rated? Because you know why? Because that is a rivalry that is steep. No, no, no. It's not a rivalry for Alabama. It is steep. Well, it is, actually. If you go talk to the alumni of the University of Alabama, all all they want to talk about is, did you beat Tennessee? Which, I mean, they they have now for the, well, Uh, more than a decade. So that's not a rivalry. So we won't talk about that part. (laughs) We won't talk about that part. Uh, But it is such a rich, it's a wonderful game. And uh, and this year's game was was actually pretty exciting. So, well, anyways, I just wanted you to know that. Just wanted you to know that, so that you could appreciate history. 
So there you go. I've forgotten about college football season this year because I have no hope for the Gators. Losing to Kentucky just makes me irritated. So, But back to the World Series, Brent, I actually took a picture for you and for Conrad and for Marie because where I was in Florida, we drove past the Braves' fancy new—I don't know how new it is, but it looked new—training, spring training yeah. facility. Cool Ray Park down in Fort Myers. Actually, no, not Fort Myers. No, it's in— um, um, it's, it's Venice. Yeah, yeah. It's, yes. Yeah. Have you seen it? I went to a game there. No. You yes. did? Yeah. Well, I've seen it and took a picture. <laughs> well, I know, but I, I actually went and watched baseball being played there back so, in spring training. Well, well, my parents live <laughs> 10 minutes from there, so <laughs> yeah, it's my great. honor roll student will beat up your honor roll student. <laughs> no, it's a, great, it's a great little park. I love it, and I love spring training. I can't wait for spring training next year, but I want this season to end with the Braves hoisting the World Series okay. championship. And I'm sure w- if they don't win, will you be upset? I'll be depressed. Okay. Well, Although they, they've they gone farther than I. I'd never expect them to get to the World Series. They've had so many injuries. So Yeah. Well, that's but, great. Uh, Happy yeah, for you I, I and our colleagues. I mean, they lost to the Astros. I, I was I was in a bit of a funk. Yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't like it when the Braves lose. Mm. So anyways. Well. All right. So, uh, Lindsay, that's your look at this week in culture. Thanks for that, Brent. Now it's time for the lunchroom where we tell you what we're talking about with each other. Brent, so listeners, so you can just have the inside info, I deleted what Brent had in our notes as far as his, uh, what's this called again? The lunchroom. I'm introducing the segment. I'm forgetting. But I, I successfully found it. So Brent, why don't you tell us what you're talking about this week? Well, yeah, I need to go first because you just have like a potpourri of randomness in your what you're bringing to the lunchroom. Yes. So. Okay, so what I'm bringing to the lunchroom is a For the Church entry, which is a a great site that equips pastors and is written by Jared Wilson. And it is about George Whitfield's grave up in Massachusetts. And it caught my eye because Matt Capps, who's a great pastor over in North Carolina, he tweeted out essentially his summary of this piece that pastors be known for proclaiming the gospel and then dying and then being forgotten. And that's actually a life worth living. And uh, But I love Jared's vivid description of his journey, you know, getting down into the basement of this church where George Whitfield is buried. And he writes this, And then there he is, beneath stone and brick, marked by a big plaque on the wall, reading in gold Whitfield's own last wish for his epitaph. Quote, I am content to wait till the day of judgment for the clearing up of my character. And after I am dead, I desire no other epitaph than this. Here lies G.W. What sort of man he was, the great day will discover. And he goes on to write, It's good, I think, that perhaps the greatest preacher in American history is laid to rest across from the church furnace underneath the church pulpit. It's yet another reminder that from dust we come, and to dust we shall return. But it's also a reminder, to me anyway, your mileage may vary, that the greatest ministries are not made from great moments or great performances, but from great faithfulness, even in the smallest of things. Oh, amen. That's gosh. Good. Oh, That's good. man. Well, and we, Jared Wilson, man, you, oh, you, you got me on this one. And uh-huh. Matt Caps, your summary, uh, tweeting out the story that that was the, what caught my eye. Both of y'all deserve major kudos on this uh, old Hallow's mm-hmm. Eve where we find ourselves. Well, and it's a reminder, especially 
we always say especially in this day and age, but always, we need more men like this who desire great faithfulness, even in the smallest of things, and for their epitaph to read what George Whitfield's, what he, he desired. And so that is a good, good article. Uh, okay. So yeah. So, okay. So, so that's, so that's my contribution here to the, the lifting up of our audience here with great thoughtful resources, Lindsay. What is it that you are bringing to the lunchroom? Well, thank you, Brent, for all the attention that you're paying to my lunchroom segment. So I have some randomness. First of all, <laughs> on my way here, I was rocking out to some old Amy Grant music on my in my CD player Tender in my car. Tennessee no, Christmas. no, I was listening to her Heart in Motion CD. Baby, baby, I'm taken with the notion. To love you with the sweetest of devotion. Those are some good songs. And you want to know what I was rocking note, out to? What? Can you guess what I was rocking out to? Something classical or country. I was rocking out to Keith and Kristen Keddie's okay. Joy, An Irish Christmas. I do love that CD. That is a great CD. I do love that CD. Side note, too, with that CD, I, Amy Grant— uh, heart emotion. I was not a believer when I got the cassette tape, and she sings about Emmanuel at the end, and I was singing along with that song before I even knew who Emmanuel was. And he was just preparing my heart. Isn't that sweet? Okay, and then I have a story for y'all. My oldest child, who's my daughter, Marion, is into everything and rambunctious, and she, we are not as they call them, free-range parents, so we don't just let her <laughs> roam and do whatever parents. she wants. She does get instructions and discipline, but she is just a combination of curious, and she can be sweet and sassy and rambunctious and stubborn and all kinds of things that is sanctifying me a lot. So we were outside the day after we came back from vacation. So there's already reentry shot going on, you know? <laughs> and we're playing with our friends, our cul-de-sac, which we are so blessed with. And Marion has developed this new habit and fascination of trying to open people's doors and go inside of their house. Well, part of it comes from her little buddy that lives on our street. He'll open his door and they'll run into the house together real quick and run upstairs and start playing, like jumping on his bed or whatever. So they did that on Sunday and the mom was inside and they got in twice. So then they finally locked the door. So then Marion is, our neighborhood is pretty open as far as the kids playing together. So then Marion gets in, well, the second time they did that, they spill water on the floor. Well, then Marion, so she gets in trouble for that. Then she makes it into another, one of our friends, the next door neighbor's garage, which again, we, the kids have toys in the garage. Everyone can play with whatever. Well, she makes it into their house. So I hear another person say, Marion's inside our house. She, and she opens their pantry and gets a snack. Mm. So she takes out a snack. I'm like, Marion, you cannot go into people's houses. How many times do I have to tell you this? So then she's looking at the neighbors next to that, their Halloween decorations, and they have two girls. Nobody's home. And I was talking to another one of the moms and Marion sometimes will go up their sidewalk and look at the decorations. I don't see her for a while. So I say, excuse me. Meanwhile, my infant son is sitting in the wagon that I pull him around in. So this mom is watching Grant in the wagon. I go looking for Marion. And there are Halloween decorations going all the way up the sidewalk to the front door. And then there's a gate that goes into the backyard where there's a playhouse where she's allowed to play. The mom will let her. So I think, I don't see Marion on the sidewalk, so I'm like, she's probably in the back the backyard. 
And so I'm like, Marion, Marion, I don't hear her. I'm getting a little nervous. And uh, I don't see her in the playhouse. Well, I turn my head right where the gate is, is the front door with a little piece of glass that is a window into the home. And right as I turn my head, I see Marion's face pop in the glass. She's inside their house. Nobody's home. I'm like, Marion, how'd you get inside your, their house? She's like, hi. And so I try to open the front door. The front door is locked. I'm like, how did you get in this house? Then I hear a voice, a man's voice. Nobody's home that says something like, she's in the backyard. And I call out, who's there? And I walk around. Nobody's there. And Marion's not in the backyard. I keep walking. I notice the back door is open. Well, it's got a glass in the back door. Well, that glass has fallen out of the door. Marion didn't make it happen. The glass is out of the door. So she saw the glass was out of the door and just walked into their house. And she's playing with random things in my neighbor's house, my neighbors who are not home. So I run into their house and grab her out really quick. Meanwhile, she's lost her shoe outside. So I grab her shoe. So then I walk out. They have ring doorbells, so I know they can see all this happening. So I walk out and I grab her shoe. I start putting her shoe on and then I'm like, what's on my hand? There's dog poop on her shoe. So she then she had stepped in dog poop in somebody's yard as well. So we have to go clean her off. In the meantime, I'm texting my friends, telling them, I'm so sorry. My kid got into your house. I hope she didn't mess anything up. Then when the mom gets home, she's cracking up and she shows me the video. Her, it was her, <laughs> it was her uh, boyfriend who was talking to me on the ring doorbell telling me, Marion is in the backyard. So he was watching the whole thing going down and texting Danielle, the house owner, about this whole scenario. One more part of the story. Danielle gets home with her girls. Marion makes it back into her home and starts opening her drawers. The girls let her in and the kitchen asking for a snack. And she makes it out of the house with some Scooby graham cracker snacks. <laughs> my kid has a problem. And she's now been deemed by my mom the, insert my street name because I don't want to say it in public, street name, street prowler. And that's what Marion is. Roaming the neighborhood to get in your house and get snacks. Give me parenting advice. I need to know how to help my child not do this. Yeah, I... Marion just seems like she's an at-risk youth. She's something. <laughs> she gets in trouble for it. I don't know what it is. It's craziness. Craziness. But thankfully, she's safe, and we have stories to tell. Well, here is one thing. You have you have definitely established you are not a helicopter parent. No. You, in some you, ways, I am. You are. You're, no. the, you're, you're, the, you're whatever the opposite of that is. You said, oh, we're, we're, we're not free-range parents. No, you're, you're actually, I think, beyond that at this no, point. No, you have to understand. <laughs> we're in a cul-de-sac with all these kids, and everyone is friendly yeah. and opens their garages to play. Marion just has—she doesn't have stranger danger issues that she needs to be having right about now. <laughs> Anyway, that's the end wow. of my story. It's well, pretty that, crazy. That was a one whale of a lunchroom segment that you just provided. You didn't so. laugh very much. I thought you'd be laughing. Maybe the I, mean, moms I was taking aren't. it all in, uh, but I am, you know, I, I mean, Marion. Wow, she's, she's just a lot. out there roaming. She's a lot. Yeah, yeah. she's a lot. Well, I want to set her up with your son, who apparently lays in <laughs> on the shelves in the grocery store and flips grocery carts over. Yeah, he did flip the buggy. Yeah, he flipped it. And my wife was my was very husband irritated. would have lost his mind. Yeah. I'm telling you, very so, irritated. Anyway, yeah, but so. this is our lunchroom, folks. Just where we tell stories, and I hope you're enjoying them. And that's a good place, I think, to end the show. Yeah. No, that story time with Lindsay was epic. Yeah. So I'm really thankful for that. I love Marion. She's. <laughs> 
Great, she's, great yeah. story material. Sugar and spice and everything nice. And please, Lord, redeem all of these strong-willed qualities of hers. <laughs> Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, which we sure hope you do, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating, five stars only, please, and review. And in addition to listening to the ERLC podcast each week, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology. If you like staying informed about important policy issues that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill. Search for The Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening. And as always, we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.